1: So this morning, I'm hoping you, I'm, I guess I'm hoping to encourage you to go to work, but I'm not just, I don't just want to encourage you to show up, I want to encourage you this morning to show up in a certain way. And so I will um, attempt this morning and next week to build for us, uh, hopefully a healthy theology of work, and I will work these next couple weeks to redefine what you believe to be the Lord's work. Got it? Um, how, how do you relate to your job? What do you think about when I say work? I'm finding that there's quite a bit of frustration that surrounds this topic. Like there's some real angst that surrounds work. That work, for the most part, just isn't working for us. Work doesn't work. That's the problem with work. Am I right? For some of you, it's not working. Like, work isn't working because you don't have a job. So work doesn't work for you because when people ask you what you do, which is the first question they ask you, Um, You have to get really creative in order to save face. And if you're not in school, then you're really screwed. And so, some of you, work's not working because you don't have any work. Um, For some of you, you, you feel underemployed. Like, work's frustrating to you because your work is beneath you. You're convinced that you were made for more than what you'll be asked to do. You're also convinced you should be paid more for what you'll be asked to do tomorrow and you're frustrated with your work because it's beneath you. You feel under appreciated and work doesn't work. Your desire, as, as I pick up on it, um, is to have an impact. I think all of us want to do something with our lives that makes a difference. And you've decided that what you do just doesn't make a difference. Inside or outside of the home, it just doesn't matter. And so work's not working for you. There's another group of people that's frustrated because they're overworked. It's not that they feel underemployed. It's that they don't know how it's humanly possible to do what they're being asked to do. There is no way to do what you're asking me to do and you're frustrated. I worked for the gas company for a time and they told us that they could o- that we could only skip a few meters per thousand. So there was there was a acceptable amount of skips. And then they told us that we could not go in the backyard of any home that had a Rottweiler, pit bull or German shepherd. I was allowed to skip two homes per thousand. Yet, you cannot go in the backyard of a home with a pit bull, Rottweiler, or German Shepherd. And you just throw your hands up. Like, something's got to give. This is not possible. What are you asking me to do here? Because in order to do this, I'm going to have to break the rules that you've set up for me. Some of you feel overworked. And I know for my, for my wife during a certain time of her life she felt like when she was with her family she was cheating clients and then when she felt like she was with clients she was cheating her family and so there was just a sense of guilt that went everywhere with her because it wasn't possible to do what she was being asked to do and some of you are frustrated like you you describe every time someone asks you how you're doing you say you're busy That's all you ever are is busy. That's all you ever are is is overworked and you're frustrated with what you're doing. You're super driven and you've just forgotten where you're going. You're like completely missing the point, which is one of the byproducts of being driven. You just at some point along the way are missing it. And then those that are overworked have this dirty little secret Because it looks like you're succeeding, um, but deep down you're losing your pleasure in what you're doing. And not only are you losing your pleasure in what you're doing, you're losing your effectiveness in what you're doing. And you're wasting hours every day because you feel overwhelmed with what's in front of you. The Chinese, they join two characters together to form a pictograph for the word busy. They, f- they take two characters to say this word busy. The two characters are heart and killing. And the truth is, is that the busyness in your life is murdering your heart. And work isn't working for you. You're actually succeeding and work isn't working for you. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then forfeits his soul? That's the reality that some of you find yourself in. I know. Some people feel like they've got no worth because they've got no work. Some people feel like their work just isn't worth it. And other people are finding their worth in their work and they're completely overwhelmed and strifed out. But the truth is that for all of us, work isn't working. Now, sometimes it works. I get it. Um, but the satisfaction is so short-lived. Why is it that, there, you know, that there, there, there is such a thing as a dream job until you get that job? And then it shortly just becomes another job. It's no longer your dream job. I started asking myself the question this week, like, why isn't work working for us? Why doesn't work work? Work, you know, and, and some of you would probably be sitting here saying, it's my boss, man. If you knew my boss, you, I, work doesn't work because of my boss. But there are people here with great bosses who still wish that tomorrow wasn't Monday. Well, it's my pay if I was paid this much. That's, that's why work doesn't work for me if I was paid more. There are people here who make more than you hope to one day get paid. They still wish that tomorrow wasn't Monday. It's my employees, it's just too demanding, whatever it is. There are people who have your dream job here and are getting paid what you dream to get paid. And work still isn't working for them. Why? Work didn't start this way. There was a time when work worked for us. There was a time when we didn't relate to work in this way we can read about it in the book of Genesis which is a book of origins talks to us about how work began you've heard the Genesis account before where God created the heavens and the earth and then he fills up the cosmos and he keeps saying things like this is good and this is good and this is good that's his that's the way he describes what he's doing and then he makes Adam and he actually says of Adam Adam is very good and then he puts Adam in the middle of a garden and he actually says to Adam, work it, care for it, and work at that point like everything else God has created is good. But you also know that it doesn't stay that way, right? Sin enters the picture, there's a serpent, a fruit, a deception, and sin enters The scene. And Adam and Eve lose many things as a result of sin, but they don't lose work. Sucks. They lose a lot. They don't lose their work. Drew Carey Carey once said, and I thought this was funny, and it's only funny because it's true. He said, oh, you hate your job? Why didn't you say so? There's a support group for that. It's called everybody and they meet at the bar. So they lose relationship with God. And they get to keep work. And I was thinking to myself, man, I would have loved to have kept my relationship with God and then lost work. That would have been a better way for this thing to shake down. So sin enters the picture. And because of our sin, work is penalized. And our relationships are penalized. And the fall messes with work. And in Genesis 3, we read this. And to the man, he said, this is God speaking to the man. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. There's the mixed bag, right? Some days work is going to work. Most days work will not work. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. And of course we know that this isn't the last word on work, we know that the Bible goes on from Genesis chapter 3, and as it goes on from Genesis chapter 3, we see the work of God to redeem us, to redeem the things that were lost in the fall, to redeem the re- relationships that have been broken, to re- redeem work which has been broken. And now as Christians, we find ourselves partnering with God, asking the question, how do we redeem work? We know that it started and it worked. We know now that work doesn't work for us. How do we get work back to the place where it works? The big arc of scripture is not just fall and redemption, which is what we hear a lot about. Your Bible starts in Genesis 1 with creation and it ends with new creation. That it moves from creation to a fall to redemption and new creation. And now we're living in between redemption and new creation, asking ourselves, how the heck do we get work to work for us? I think the church in Thessalonica gives us this beautiful picture of what work looks like when it's working. Like we get a glimpse of the win, like what's possible, like when we do restore work, when we do redeem work, how will we know that we're doing it? How will we know if work's working for us? Paul, he worked with his hands to support his ministry, and this guy insisted on the value of common labor. He wrote your Bible and then supported himself as he did. He made tents and he constantly insisted on the value of really common labor. And he keeps telling this church in Thessalonica about the value of labor. And he says this to the church in 1 Thessalonians 4. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Just as we told you, I already told you this, mind your own business and work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent upon anybody. Make it your ambition to work with your hands. I grew up with a dad who was a general contractor who said the exact opposite. Make it your ambition, Travis, not to work with your hands. Find books and read them. Second Thessalonians, Paul goes on to say this, for you yourselves know know how you ought to follow our example. Again, he's charging this church, you guys know, follow my example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we, we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. You don't work, you don't eat. Paul has a lot to say to this church about work, and then Paul also Encourages and celebrates this church saying that this church is full of preachers and evangelists. In chapter 1, verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians, it says, and now, and now, he's celebrating this church and what they've achieved. He says, the word of the Lord is ringing out from you. Some of your translations will say sounding out. There's something of a blast Happening from this church to people everywhere. And then Paul says, wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it. They're telling us about it. They keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And this is what's amazing. And this is The vision that I want to present to you this morning, working and ringing, working and sounding, that for Paul, these things coexist. It's not that one's in the way of the other, that we can have both of these things, that we can be working and the Lord's message message can be ringing out from us. That the gospel can be blasted as we give ourselves to the work that God's put in front of us. And I think for a lot of us, including myself, it feels like, well, the working is in the way of the ringing. I'd be really good at ringing if I wasn't working. And there are others that feel like the ringing is more important than the working. And Paul says, no, 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 these two things go together for us. Working and ringing. And this is what I would want to lift up before you. The vision I want to present to you this morning. We'll know that work is working when we're working and it's ringing. When we're working and it's sounding. When we're working and the Lord's message is going out. These things are together for us. You know it. You see it. You've got a desire for it. A hunger for it. You know that we can have an impact on our city by working and the Lord's message can ring out from us. So there's a couple things that I think are going to need to shift in order for us to do this. The working, the ringing, and the impacting of our city. A couple things that we're going to have to redefine and we'll spend this week and next week talking about it. But the first thing that we need to reframe or the first thing I'd like to challenge is I'd like to challenge your definition of the Lord's work. In order for work to work, you're going to have to redefine the Lord's work. When I say the Lord's work, what do you think of? My vocation, not yours. And this is a huge problem for us. In order for work to work, you can't just think about me when I say the Lord's work. Could, I know you're probably thinking, you you don't understand what I do. Could your work become the Lord's work? And what would it take for your work to become the Lord's work? What would it take? What is He looking for? This isn't totally your fault, the working definition that you have of the Lord's work. Not totally your fault um, I, i'd like to blame it on Eusebius, third century um, bishop of Caesarea. We can all blame it on Eusebius. It's Eusebius. He actually had some some huge contributions to make. He was a, a church historian, a pretty prolific writer. Um, Let me tell you about something he wrote that wasn't very prolific and is still causing damage in our churches today, still really harming our mission together. Eusebius said that there was actually two groups of us here this morning. Some of us have the perfect life and others have the permitted life. I, of course, I have the perfect life. You, of course, you have the permitted life. And before we bag on Eusebius... Can we acknowledge that maybe we've bought into this? That there are some people, they, they do the Lord's work and they're engaged in contemplative things and there, there are others that do ordinary work. It's just necessary. It's just what you got to do to get through, right? There are some people that have the perfect life, some people that have the permitted life. So monks, nuns, priests, we actually have the perfect life, you can ask my wife, and the permitted life were those people, you know, working and dabbling in secular things, things that were mundane or unholy. And this view, this idea, this divide between what is sacred and secular, this divide between what is perfect and what is permitted, this divide between between what is contemplative and and what has action to it, this divide between higher and lower, like, that's great, I'm glad you're doing good in JV, but for those of us who play varsity, there's more, you know? This divide um, stood for over a thousand years and went largely uncontested until Martin Luther led a reformation. And one of the things that Luther was contending for and saying this needs to be reformed is our understanding of the priesthood. And Martin Luther insisted upon the priesthood of all believers. That there aren't just some people with the perfect life, that Jesus lived the perfect life and died in our place and now we all have been granted the perfect life because we've all been invited to be priests. That we no longer need a mediator between us, that Jesus has made a way for us to have direct access to God. Um, Luther got this uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, and it says, But you're a chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, you're it. A holy nation, God's special possession. Martin Luther insisted that all believers can pray. All believers can be heard by God. All believers can handle the word of God. This was revolutionary. All believers are spiritually equal in Christ. All believers are priests. All believers are to be witnesses of the gospel. So Martin Luther with this Belief founded in Scripture. Went on to say some really radical things. Let me read to you some of his quotes. The the work. The works of monks and priests. However holy and arduous they be. Do not differ one whit in the sight of God. From the works of the rustic laborer in the field. Or the woman going about her household tasks. But But that all works. Are measured by God by faith alone. Indeed, the menial housework of a maidservant is often more acceptable to God than all the fasting and other works of a monk or a priest because the monk or the priest lacks faith. Listen to this other quote from Luther. You can tell he had a lot of friends. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. (laughs) The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. William Tyndale, a contemporary of Martin Luther's, said, If our desire is to please God, pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word is all one. If our desire is to please God, If the issue isn't what you do, but it's why you do it, if that's really what we're talking about here is your motivation, why you do what you do, and it's not necessarily that what you do is holy, but that everything can be holy because of why you do it. If our desire is to please God, pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word is all one. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Really? Does this challenge some of the categories that you've set up? What's sacred and what's secular? Tyndale was strangled for believing this. Condemned as a heretic and strangled. Men died so that we would have this understanding of the priesthood of all believers. It's not just that men died so that we'd understand the priesthood of all believers. God Himself died so that you would understand the priesthood of all believers. It wasn't just that people were strangled. God subjected himself to torture so that you would have access, so that you could pray, so that there would no longer be any mediator besides Jesus Christ between, God, between heaven and earth. Do you believe this? Does this challenge the way you'll approach what you do Tomorrow, I hope so. There were times this week when I was thinking about this divide. When I found myself thinking, didn't Jesus demean workday work? Like, didn't Jesus, when he called his disciples, didn't he have this kind of like, you know... Well, you're fishing fish, and that's the permitted life. But I want to call you to fish men into what would be the perfect life. Did Jesus have a value for common labor? Or do we have our very simplistic and one-dimensional view of the Lord's work because of some of the things that Jesus Did Let me read from you from Luke 5. Let me read to you from Luke 5. One day Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. The people were crowding around him listening to the word of God. And he saw the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore And then he sat down and he actually taught people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. Is the point of this passage that Jesus values some jobs more than others? Is the point of this passage that Jesus wants to devalue fishing for fish? Does Jesus want to shut down the fishing industry? Is that what Jesus is trying to do? Is he trying to make a statement about what these guys do? Hey guys, no more patching boats. No more mending nets. I'm going to call you into something that's worthwhile. Something that's going to have an impact. Come with me. As we fish men, is that what Jesus is trying to do? If Jesus, I would suggest to you, no, that that's not what this passage is about. If you haven't picked that up by the thick sarcasm, I don't think that that's what this passage is about. This passage is not about the fishing industry. This passage is about calling and this passage is about being obedient to what Jesus has called you to do. If Jesus wanted to make a statement about how pathetic fishing was, then he missed the perfect opportunity. It was teed up so well. These guys spent all night fishing and they came up with nothing. And when Jesus finds these guys and says, Let's set out into the deep, we're going to fish again. They essentially say, do we have to? Do we have to do that again? My job sucks right now. Sucks to be me right now. I don't want to do, Jesus, what you're asking me to do. And there was the perfect opportunity for Jesus. If what he wanted to do was devalue fishing for fish and elevate fishing for men, he missed the perfect opportunity. Because all he needed to say to these guys is, listen, guys. You fished all night. You came up with nothing. What you're doing is worthless. You're wasting your time. They would have been like, they're all ears at this point. You're right. What I'm doing is completely worthless. He could have said to them, come with me and I'll give you a real job that has a real impact on people's lives. That's what Jesus could have done if what he wanted to do was make a statement about the value of fishing. That's not what he did. He actually said to these guys, no, we're going fishing again. And they come up with this massive catch, right? And I believe that that happened so that Jesus could teach his disciples about the cost of obedience. Because it's easy to to quit your job when it's going bad. When it feels like this is not making a difference. Why are we wasting our time doing this? Jesus could have easily came along and said, you're right. You're wasting your time. Come with me, fish men. That's not what he did. He took them out. They reeled in the biggest catch they'd ever caught. And then he says, come and follow me. He uses their rickety boat as a pulpit. And they score this massive catch. And then he asks them to walk away from it. The point of this passage is not that some trades or vocations or more valuable than other the point of this passage is calling in obedience what has jesus called you to do if he's called you to fish then dog on it fish do that be obedient to what he's called you to do if he's called you to be a nurse then you be a nurse you be a nurse you do what he's asked you to do if he's called you to be a mom And you'll know if he's called you to be a mom, if you have kids. If you have kids, then he's called you to be a mom, then you be a mom. You do that. You be obedient. If he's called you to lay down your nets and follow him into something new, then you do that. The point of this passage is you do what Jesus has called you to do. What has he called you to do? Based on what we've just talked about, that there is no such thing. As something that isn't an opportunity to worship Him or bring glory to Him. What has He called you to do? Who has He called you to? And are you being obedient to His call on your life? That's what's important. That is the Lord's work. That's the Lord's work. What else could the Lord's work be if it's not being obedient to our Lord? If you are being obedient to your Lord, then you are doing the Lord's work. It has nothing to do with sprinkling people, baptizing people, preaching sermons. It doesn't have to do with those things. If you are doing what God has called you to do and you know that, you're doing the Lord's work. What was Jesus up to if it wasn't just being obedient to the call that was placed on his life? Trusting God, even when that call became enduring torture. It says that he was just doing what the father had asked him to do. That was his goal. Not necessarily to do, you know, I mean, the preaching, the miracles, all of it was out of an obedience to what God had called him to do. What has God called you to I'd love you to spend some time this week asking the question, what has he called you to? And also asking the question, who has he called you to? Because I think many times that's clearer for us than the what. And a lot of times what we do is based on who he's called us to. I'd love you to think on that this week. Next week, what we're actually going to do is commission you set you apart for the work that God's called you to. I don't care where it is or what it is. Actually, I there probably are some things out of bounds. can think of a f- few, <laughs> probably. I don't know if it completely doesn't matter, but... We're going to pray and commission you. Uh, last week, if you were here, Mike and Katie, uh, we sent them out to plant a church, and... Uh, they had a, a clear sense that they were called to go, and we had a clear sense that we were supposed to send them. We anointed them, set them apart for what God had called them to. But the truth is, is that every one of us is leaving this place and stepping into something that God has sent us to do. And I'd love to live with a sense of our sentness. That we wouldn't come back to get what went on today. Well, I went to work. But there would be some sense that you were sent to work. What would change about your work day if you woke up and said, I've been sent to work? That I, You know, when I come home from the day and report on my day, if I went to work and then I met with this person. But what if I had a clear sense that I was actually sent to work? That I was actually sent to meet with someone? That I'd actually been commissioned, um, invited into something? What would change about your work if you carried that with you tomorrow I'd love to see that shift and I'd love to see the gospel ring out from here not because we're not working but because we are that the working and the ringing would go out together as we end uh, we're actually going to listen to a prophetic word Uh, for those of you who are new to church or scared of that part of church. <laughs> There's two, two people here. Um, God gifts people in His church to speak on His behalf. And what is said should be tested, um, because what God says is great, but as it's filtered through um, us, uh, th- sometimes things get off. And so we're invited to test prophecy, But God still speaks through us, um, and He'll speak through specific people to encourage the church, to build the church up, and to bring direction to the church. That's what He'll do through someone with a prophetic gift. And we had someone with us last October who has a really strong prophetic gift, and He gave us a really interesting word. Uh, I guess to tee this up, this man did not know who we were. Um, He had just gotten off a plane from Russia where he had been for a couple weeks. He didn't know any of the history, any of the context of what we're doing at Radiant Church, but he felt that God put something on his heart and he shared what he saw with us. He had no idea that we had just recently joined with Savior's Community Church He had no idea that OVC, people from OVC, had made their way over from Exeter and were now participating um, in, in life at Radiant. He had no idea who I was. He had no idea that Mark had stepped on staff. He comes in blind from Russia and shares a sense that he has on his heart. And I'd love to play that for you guys because I think it has more to do with you than it does with me.
0: this uh, morning first came in, first session I sat there and really felt the Lord was showing me something, a picture of what is going on here and uh, it so was in keeping with what particularly what John was sharing that I just felt like maybe this would be a good time for me to to bring it I I jotted it down just so I wouldn't forget but what I saw was a like a, a theatrical stage set up and there was a play in progress, a drama unfolding on the stage. It was underway. And uh, then there was kind of an intermission. And I felt like what the Lord was bringing to my heart in that was that there's now a new act coming forward, coming on stage for Radiant Church. It's a new act, a new Dimension of the unfolding of God's big story that He wants to reveal among you, and I, I felt like uh, that the, the Holy Spirit is the director, and He is moving things on into something fresh, and He wants to make it very clear that what's happening here is not a return to a former act, something that has already unfolded. It's not going backward into a story that's already happened. It's moving on into a developing story and a new dimension of that story. I felt like the former acts that have happened here and your life together as a community are all leading up to what's about to unfold now. And, and uh, there's, um, there, there is a rallying of the troops for advancement, a rallying, of and that's part of the story. He's drawing you together for a specific purpose, and that is to take you forward in his purpose, for taking new ground, for taking new territory for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And I feel like there's a a regrouping that's happening somehow here I don't know all your story. I've just come. But there's a regrouping that's happening among you, and it is for this purpose. For, because the momentum is going to pick up. The momentum of harvest is going to pick up. If you've been around farming, you know when harvest time comes, momentum picks up. And there's a momentum that's coming that's going to be increasing. And right now, the Lord's just rallying the troops and regrouping you for that purpose. He's the director. And I really felt like out of that, the Lord uh, really dropped it in my heart that what He's doing is establishing a beachhead. He's establishing something that is like a beachhead for, the, for, for an equipping and for a retooling in some ways of you as a body to move on into that new unfolding of His purpose for you, this drama that's unfolding. He's about to send you into new territory. Beachheads are established so you can take more ground. And I believe God is about ready to send you in a new territory concerning His purposes. It's partly geographical. It's not purely geographical. I think the Lord wants to send you into new Domains. If I could use that term, which is now being used quite a bit these days, it speaks of the, the the parts of the culture where you now are that aren't necessarily being penetrated by the gospel. And I felt like he just dropped some things. There's there, the domain of the arts is going to come into focus more, and you're going to find God. Some of you are going to find God opening doors into the realm of the domain of the arts. Others are going to find God opening doors to you because of who you are and what you are into the realm of of the education that happens here, educational institutions. I felt felt that there's a student population God wants to open up to you as a church that you haven't reached yet, you haven't affected yet, but God wants to stir some people that are here or people that you know that are part of this fellowship for moving out into that Student population, he wants to open up to you. Some of this may already be happening, but I think there's a dimension of it that is yet to come new territory to take. And also, felt that there's a domain of business community that God's going to some, there's some people here in business, or there's people in the church in realms of business. God's going to begin to give you openings to take new territory, to see harvest, to see real penetration into the domain of the business community right here in this area. I feel like with that, with this retooling, this time of regrouping, the wind of the Spirit is blowing in a fresh way. And when John mentioned right off the the start, you know, the the wind of the Spirit is blowing that's what I felt when I came and sat down in the chair in the first session. I just sensed the wind of God blowing in a fresh way. And He's beginning to blow upon you as a church. Not again for... It's not just so there is a party atmosphere, although I love the party part. It's, It's actually part of this retooling. It's part of this regrouping that He's doing among you to move you on into His purposes. He's empowering you as a people for harvest. For harvest in a new way, in a new dimension. And I really believe that one of the things that God is wanting to do in this process is, is to generate or to work among you to establish you as a sort of an Antioch-like church that is ascending church, a church that becomes the pulse of, of mission and penetration into new territory, sometimes geographical, sometimes right here in this city. And there's a release of the Spirit that he wants to bring, where gifts of the Spirit are much more pronounced and notable in your life together. Not in some hype way, but real life Holy Spirit activity in the quiet moments of personal encounter as well as when you're all together. And I just feel like these are great days for you. It's good.
1: That uh, wasn't just a word for us as leaders, but a word for us as a church. And uh, I'd encourage you to pray uh, into that. Uh, Next week, we'll be praying into that, commissioning um, people who are in different places. And uh, what I'd love to do is, Monica is actually going to lead a a worship song to close. and, And you can worship with her if you like. But I'd love you to spend some time on this question of what has Jesus called me to? And who has Jesus called me to? And I'd like to ask you to have ears to hear what he's saying. Jesus was always looking for people who had ears to hear, not ears to control and manage, not ears to edit, but ears to hear what he's saying to you. And would you trust him? If he's asking you to stay put, stay right, right in the job you're currently in, would you trust him that he'll provide for you? If he's asking you to step out and leave behind what you know you've been called to leave behind, would you trust him and step out? But would you? You can worship in song, but you can just worship from your heart by again doing what Monica invited us to do, which is just trust. Trust Jesus. When Monica's done, we'll release. Would you spend your time thinking about these questions? Trust in Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com Until next time,
1: Though I love the flowers and trees and the smell of the
0: grinding sea and all the beautiful things here in life, I.